Psalm 150. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel dance. Praise Him with strings, instruments, and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the prayers that have went up from your people before this. And we thank you, Lord, for the praise that has went up to you. We ask you, Lord, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask you, O God, that you would now settle us in our minds and our hearts to be able, O Lord, to be able to hear your voice, the voice of the great shepherd. And we pray, Father, tonight, Lord, that we would leave this place with praise in our hearts, Lord, knowing, Lord, that you are the same yesterday and today and forever and that you alone are worthy of all the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Tonight we just want to look simply at praise the Lord. And usually when we have someone say praise the Lord, people would return with hallelujah. Or when one would say hallelujah, others would shout praise the Lord, because that's what it means. And we want to look a little at that this evening. Psalm 150, and we have our six verses which we'll be looking at. But just something by the way. There are 150 Psalms. This is the last in the, the Psalter or in the book of Psalms. Psalm 117 is the shortest Psalm only having two verses. Psalm 119 is the longest Psalm having 176 verses. Now when we look through the Psalms, the whole volume of them, 51 Psalms are anonymous. Could be David, but we're not sure, for it doesn't say. But 51 are anonymous. 73 are noted as being written by David. 12 by Asaph. There are two from Solomon, one from Moses, and the rest are from the sons of Korah. So therein encompasses 150 Psalms. Notice the very first word is praise. Praise ye the Lord, and it ends in the last line of the last verse, praise ye the Lord. The Alpha and the Omega, or the beginning and the ending of this psalm, is praising the Lord. It should uh, show us how we are to open our days praising the Lord. Throughout our day, praising the Lord. The closing of our day, praising the Lord in the evening. Something we need to look at here is this is, first of all, who is to be praised? First of all is, who is to be praised? You and I are told in verse 1, praise ye the Lord. The word Lord there is the word Yah, from Yahweh, or some would translate it from Jehovah. But Yah is to be praised. It means the Lord most vehement. In other words, it's, it's God who is so vehement in his love for us. God who is so vehement in his passion for his people. God who is so vehement to protect his loved ones. And that's the same God who is so vehement against sin. 
Sometimes we have an imbalanced gospel where there are preachers who are saying it's all love, but there's no judgment. But rather there are the both. It's a balanced gospel for those who are in Christ, for those who are saved. They are in the love of God. Those who are outside of Christ are lost and will come under the judgment of God. Now, love to God or love from God is an attribute of God. An attribute means it's accredited to who he is, to his characteristic. So God is love. Wrath is not accredited to the characteristics of God. Wrath, rather, is what God has. So love, God is love. God has wrath, has wrath against sin, wrath against injustice. God has wrath. Wrath can be averted at Calvary when men and women turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in the finished work that he accomplished on the cross. And so in there you see the difference. Love is whom God is and what God is. It's his character. It's attributed. It's an attribute to his very nature. But wrath is something he has, not wanting it to be vent that he sends his son to die for us. So when we look at this, we have praise ye the Lord. And at the end of it, it is praise ye the Lord, or Yah, the Lord most vehement. Now, if you were to count the word praise there in six verses, you'll count it 13 times. 13 times. God here, praise ye the Lord. Look at the next line. Praise God in his sanctuary. The word God there is El. So it's praise ye Yah, the Lord most vehement. And then it is praise God or praise God or El, as in Elohim, the God of plural majesty, the God of plurality, God who created the heavens and the earth. Starts talking about then his sanctuary and this firmament. So we start to look at how the psalmist knows whom they're worshipping. The psalmist starts to have form in the old covenant as best possible way they can a relationship with this Lord most feminine and a relationship with the same Lord who is known as the creator of all the earth or the universe and all things. So now we're starting to see his bigness, his greatness, how vast he is. And the psalmist, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is starting to stretch it out for us to let us see who God really is. By the time we see the size of our God in our little finite minds, then we can multiply it infinitely more than what it would usually be as much as we could think of that, that is. Then we find out that he is so vast we cannot comprehend him. But yet he is so personal. He came because he loved us. Now that's way past our understanding. But it's magnificent to us. It's wonderful to us. It's fantastic to us. And so whenever we're looking here, it says, praise Yah, then praise El. And it says here we're to praise him 13 times it is in this one little verse. So who is to be praised? The Lord, God, he is to be praised. Next, we are told where he is to be praised. Where he is to be praised. Verse 1 says, Praise ye the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him 
in the firmament of his power. So where is God to be praised? First of all, we are to praise him in his sanctuary. Now the sanctuary would have been early days of Israel, would have been the tabernacle in the wilderness. Then, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. And we have, if we can use the, the, the Greek words that are used for temple, the, the two main words are heron and uh, neos. And heron is the, the stonework, the building, the gold, the silver, the metal, the structure, like we're in this house tonight. That's the heron of the building. That's the sanctuary building. But also the temple, it's called in the New Testament. The temple of the Naos was the Holy of Holies, where God met with Israel through the high priest at that time. So this was heaven on earth. In fact, there's one translation that tells us that little 18-foot uh, box by 18-foot inside that tabernacle, then the temple, when the high priest of Israel went in and there was the Ark of the Covenant and the, the mercy seat and the cherubim angels touching one another wing to wing and looking down into that, that covenant box. We're told that the glory of God came down and when the glory of God came down, the only thing that stopped the sinful high priest from being consumed was the blood of the Lamb. So this place is where it's the naos. It means the temple of God, where God dwells. Now, we know God's omnipresent, but it means God's immediate presence, God's manifest presence. And so when the high priest went in, that was the sanctuary, that was the holy place, that was the naos. Now, in New Testament terms, when Paul tells us, know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, he doesn't use the word on. He uses naos. So Hereon is still the, the structure of the building. Naos is the place that is where God's manifest presence dwells. So even as it was prayed just a few moments ago, yes, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead in this new covenant that we're under, he dwells in us. So the body of Christ, which is the temple, we are now the naos of God not an Old Testament temp tabernacle and not an Old Testament temple, but we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul refers to when he tells us that. So where is God to be praised? In that sanctuary, in that temple, the place where his presence is manifest. And so in the new covenant, where is God to be praised? He's to be praised in his church, his body. So when you and I are gathering to sing, it's not just a matter of let's just sing a few songs and clock in our card and clock back out again. We are here to have the Lord move in us, the Spirit to start to move and bubble within us, as it were, like a brook of living water, that we are to praise Him in the sanctuary as we gather together. So when we come together, it is for praise, it's worship. The sanctuary is a place of worship. It's, a sanctuary is a place for God's people. Yes, this building. But you and I are the place where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells. When we leave here, the Holy Spirit doesn't live in this temple made with hands. But the Holy Spirit lives within you. So the psalmist is saying, praise him. You and I are to praise him. Notice, praise him in his sanctuary. And then it says, Praise him in the firmament. Here we have 
the sanctuary of God on earth. And in the old covenant, in the sanctuary of God on earth, we have to look at the temple or the tabernacle before that. Nowhere on earth, now think about this, nowhere on earth, anywhere on the earth, none of the great empires on the earth, none of the religious establishments on the earth, nowhere on the earth, nor in outer space, nor in any other planet or universe, nowhere outside of God's immediate heaven would God meet anyone else but the place where the blood was shed. And it's the same now. It's the same today. Only in the new covenant. He says, I'll meet you here. Where this ark of the covenant, this box is, this wooden box covered in gold. I'll meet you there. Sprinkle the blood and I'll meet you there. Nowhere else. And so whenever we go into the new covenant, God only meets us in his son. God only meets us through his son. That's why John 14 and 6, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And when we want to be reconciled to God, when we want to be uh, in fellowship with God, when we want to have peace with God, then we must have it through Christ alone, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there I'll meet you. You want to come and meet me? Meet me through my son. That's why when we pray, we come through the name of Jesus. That's why when we make mention of the precious blood of Jesus, that's why we make mention of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and that's why all things are done centrally and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to praise him in the sanctuary. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 134 and verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Lift them up and bless him. Don't be afraid to lift your hands in worship. Don't be afraid to lift your hands in prayer. Don't be afraid to lift your hands and sing. Don't be afraid and bless the Lord from your heart. Lift them up in Jesus' name. Lift them up and bless the God who sent his Son. Bless the one who came to save you. Lift up your hands and bless him when we gather together in a time of corporate worship. Lift up your hands and bless him when you're in your bedroom or whether you're in your kitchen or wherever you are and you're worshiping the Lord Jesus. You're praying. You're seeking his face. Don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed to lift up your hands and bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So we are to bless him in the sanctuary. Then it says, or praise him in the sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. Now, the Hebrew word for firmament is the word rakia. And it's a, it's a strange word for it gives the idea of the visible arch of the sky. The visible arch of the sky. That's the firmament. So in other words, everything from heaven, wherever heaven is out there, wherever the, the abode of, of our Father and the angels are out there, wherever the man Christ Jesus ascended to out there, wherever that may be, way out there, right through all of those 
universes and galaxies and all the trillions and billions of them and the stars and planetary systems right through to this little third rock from the sun called Earth. Right into Earth where we go to a little place, a province here, or wherever someone else may be in the world, a province here of Ulster. Right into this place here of, of this church here of Five Mile Hill. Just outside Mount Norris. Wherever it comes from heaven to earth, that means from the firmament, praise him who's up there. Praise him who's down here. Praise him up there with the praises of the saints down here. And here's the thing, we think God's so far. God's so aloof. God's so high and almighty, and he's all of those things. But God is also very present. God is also with you. He's within you, believer, Christian. He's within you. So this gives you a praise him in the firmament. Now the, the, the psalmist is starting to look, and he's starting to see the magnificence of God. As it were, he's magnifying and blowing up, as it were, as big as the Spirit will allow his little mind to compute, to write down here to say, Look at the expanse of the universe. Even there, praise is happening. Even there, from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth, praise is happening all the time. And this word here, rakia, it's used for various words, but here it means the visible arch of the sky. He's looking and he's saying, Lord, you're the God who made all of this. You're the one who set all this in place. You're the one who spoke your words and the worlds were framed. And so even by saying this, when you and I rehearse this, when you and I go over this, you know what we're saying? I'm praising you. I'm praising you for your greatness. I'm praising you, Lord, for your majesty. I'm praising you, oh my God. So the, it says, praise him in the firmament off his power. Psalm 19 says these words, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter the speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Sometimes actions really do speak louder than words. The faithfulness, if I can call it that, the faithfulness of the earth that revolves in its axis around the sun. The faithfulness of the sun who keeps burning in the middle of the universe. The faithfulness of the stars that are burning at night. They're faithful in their place and without a word being spoken, yet they speak of a great creator. They keep preaching to us. They keep speaking to us loudly. It's starting to get dark now. It's evening time and it's starting to get dark. And when we leave here, there'll hardly be any light. But yet there'll be stars in the sky. There'll be an orbital moon around the earth. 
it will reflect the sun, the lesser light by night. Just like God said it would do. And this tells us, when we look at it, oh, we praise you for the firmament and the firmament of your power. We praise you, Lord, because every time I get up, and if I get out of bed, and whether it's rain, hail, sleet, or snow, I can say, Lord, you're still on the throne. Do you know why we can say you're still on the throne? Because he said there would be seasons. He said there would be seasons until he returns. He said that there would be the sun by day and the moon by night and the stars would be like lights in the sky. You see, in their faithfulness, if you know what I mean in saying it, in their faithfulness, they're speaking volumes. And here people would say, well, I, I, if God spoke to me, God spoke to me. And really the gospel is written in the sky. There's a God in heaven who has spoke all things into being. And when we go out at night, still all things are upheld by the word of his power. We haven't even touched the very hem of his garment yet. Never mind went through the fragrance of his robes. Such is our God. And what is happening here in the Psalms, they tend to blow up, as it were, as big as they can with the help of the Spirit to magnify God that you and I can say, lo, here is your God. So tonight, tomorrow, the next day, the next night, wherever it is, if you go on holiday and the sun's in the sky and all things are continuing on, you can look when you're maybe at a low ebb or maybe you're struggling or maybe you're frightful or maybe whatever, and you can say, Father, you're still speaking. Sometimes our ears are dull. Sometimes our hearts are heavy. Sometimes the heavens seem like brass. But when we look at the skies, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day on the day, order of speech. And night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Every single country, every single continent on this earth has seen the glory of God in the heavens. So we praise him for it. We don't praise the heavens. We don't worship the sun nor the moon, nor the stars, but we praise the God who made them and keeps them all in orbit. So, creation speaks of him. Angels worship him. Cherubim and seraphim exalt him. All of heaven adores him. So you and I on earth we are told to praise him. To praise him. There's no Puritan called Thomas Watson. And Thomas Watson once said this, Praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. 
In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. Think about that. So when we had our time of prayer before we were here, we were acting like men. We were calling on the only God that is living and real and alive to help us. But when we praise, we're acting like angels in glory. When we praise, we're acting like those around the throne. Our praises for our God should mirror those of heaven, except they should be even greater. You see, the angels of heaven do not know what it's like to be saved. The angels of heaven don't know what it's like to be redeemed. The angels of heaven don't know what it's like to know and have the knowledge of the forgiveness of sin. The angels of heaven don't know what it's like to have experienced being washed in the blood of the Lamb. The angels of heaven have not been plucked, as it were, like brands from the burning. The angels of heaven have no idea what it's like to hear the gospel whenever you're at your wit's end, so low or down or heavy or in distress. The angels of heaven don't know what it's like to hear the word of God preached to a heart that's so sinful and to a nature that's so depraved that's bound for hell, yet to be rescued by the one who came to save them. The angels that kept not their first estate are reserved in chains of darkness and they will never be redeemed. Difference is you and me, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So how much more should we praise him? How, what other reason do we need to lift up our hands in the sanctuary? What other reason do we need to lift our voices unto God and to be unafraid and unashamed of him? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter says this, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, listen, which things the angels desire to look into. Which things the angels desire to look into. And going back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament when Israel were in the wilderness in the tabernacle, and then in Jerusalem in the temple, there was that box we spoke of, an angel's wing, touching angel's wing, or, or cherubim wing. And there was the golden lid, and they were looking down like this, as though looking into the box. That lid was called the mercy seat. And in that box was Aaron's rod that budded, blossomed, and bloomed. In that box was the, uh, the law of God, the Ten Commandments that was broken by Israel. In that box was a pot of manna when God fed them uh, the angels' food, the daily bread. And they all represented Christ. Here he is. I am the bread of life. Here he is again. I am the resurrection. Where's that? The very rod was a dry stick taken off a tree and turned into a walking implement. But yet God caused it, the death, 
to yield to life and brought forth the budding. Here he is again. He he came to keep the law we couldn't keep. These angels are looking down into this. Here we have it. Death and no resurrection. Here we have bread that will rot after day. Here we have the law, the commandments that were broken. And the angels are looking at desiring to know more of it. When the lid goes on the top of it, it's called the mercy seat. Of course, John tells us Christ is a propitiation, which is the mercy seat. Christ is the one who averts the wrath of God for our sins. And there is the blood applied. The angels desire to look into it. Oh, angels in heaven, desiring to look into this salvation you and I have. They're praising God, and so should you and I. Thirdly, why is the Lord to be praised? Let's look at verse 2. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Notice, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him for his excellent greatness. As I said, they try to take God's power and his works. And How do you show someone the vastness of something outside of your own ability? An otherworldly thing has happened. In other words, when John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Here John is saying, Behold what manner of love. What manner of love he's saying. What sort of other worldly love is this? The idea is it's not a, a worldly love, or it's not a love that man can uh, know of his own self. If you search all the world and even the love of a parent to a child, which is the strongest bond that I would know, even that bond, he says, this love is outside of that. It's inexplainable. It's unexplainable and it's inexplicable. It's something we cannot show people nor tell. But yet, behold, now look at this, he says, what manner of love. It's otherworldly the Father bestowed upon us. Upon who? Upon you and upon me. Upon guilty sinners, lawbreakers, commandment breakers, that we should be called the sons of God, the daughters of God, the children of God, that you and I should be called His own. Surely that's something for us to praise Him for. So when we look at this, it's how do do they express something that's outside of their own understanding, but the Holy Spirit tells them what they're right, then the Holy Spirit shows us when we read, Lo, here is your God. And so, the Old Testament writers tend to describe the Lord and His power, His works and His ways in the most gigantic way possible. Hence the word Yah. Praise ye the Lord, or praise ye Yah. Yah was a sacred word. It was the unpronounceable word. That's why we get what's known as the tetragrammaton, or the Y-H-V-H, or Y-H-W-H, Yehu-Vahu. When you see that, 
because the, the word, the name of God was not to be spoken. Such was his magnificence. So great and majestic and gigantic is he. So holy is he. Don't even mention his name. And so they call him Yah. And we have words like El Almighty. And when we get to this, we see that this worship and praise and description of God is accurate and it's true. And it does bless the heart and quickens the spirit. And look what it says here. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. How do we do that, Lord? What's the greatest thing God has ever done? Made the heavens we have spoken of? I mean, it's just phenomenal. Made the earth and the angels that are there too. I mean, we don't even, we don't even know what that's like. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love them. We don't know what the heavens are like. We can hardly find out what it's like outside of, of, of our own planet, past the moon. Sometimes we send things into orbit for years and they send back some pictures. That's about the height of it. How do we praise God? How do we know what the, the biggest, most gigantic and massive thing that he's ever done? How do we praise him for that? We can't comprehend it. So Lord, please help us. Please, Lord, help us. His acts are, his acts are mighty acts. And his greatness is a mighty greatness. Notice this. According to his excellent greatness. What is the greatest thing that God has ever done? Let me tell you what the greatest thing that God has ever done. You ready? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, reading from verse 18 and 19. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. You want to see the greatest thing that God has ever done? Is it the planetary systems that we don't even know as well? Even that we can't grasp how great that is? Is it the, the heavenly beings and the things we read of that are in glory? Even that we cannot grasp? No. The greatest act, the excellent greatness of God, the greatest thing he's ever done was he gave us his son and he took hell-deserving, hell-bound sinners who were dead in their trespasses and in their sins, who were against him or thought nothing of him, and he came in spite of them and died for them. Now, that's greater than the heavens. That is greater. He has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Notice, God was in Christ reconciling the world, you and I, to himself, not imputing our trespasses onto us. 
In other words, he doesn't count up. The word impute here gives the idea to make a sum off, to count up, to add up, to pile up, to calculate, and then lay the charge. I don't know about you, but there are sins that I know that I've committed, and there are sins I don't even realize I've committed. There are things that I've forgotten that I've committed, and even my own very nature from birth is sinful. God could be piling them and compiling up everything against you, against me, and come up with the whole litany charge. Guilty as charged, son. You're guilty as charged. God could compute this on, impute it, and he said, lay it on us to take and say it's yours. This one here, he's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. This one is pure and he's spotless. He's the impeccable son of God. This one here is without fault, without blemish. No spot on him. But you, Ken Davidson, this is you. Here is the whole of your sin counted and I laid on you. You're worthy of eternal death. But he didn't. He hasn't. And he won't. Because that spotless one, that sinless, perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he took mine and he looked at it and he laid it on him. He took yours and he looks at it. Oh, you're guilty. Every one of you. Every one of us. And he lays it on him. All of it was laid on him. And he takes his, that which he has imputed, or that which he has had accounted up to him, sinless, holy, harmless, guiltless, and pure. And for some reason, he puts it on me, the righteousness of Christ. He puts it on you. That's the greatest act that God has ever done. It's not the system of the stars, and they're fantastic. It's not even the angels and all the things that are in heaven. We cannot compute with our minds. No. It's he sent his only begotten son into this world to die for us. Praise him for his mighty acts. The Old Testament saints are prone to, if you want, uh, pile mountain upon mountain. And then they will, on the other hand, rejoice with thousand times, ten thousand and thousand of thousands. And this is the way they talk. They magnify it all out. And so men and women tend to think of God as to be too big, too mighty and powerful, to think of them. If we're that small and he's that great, why would he think of me? I still wonder. And the psalmist says, when I consider thy habits and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou shouldest think upon him. Brothers and sisters, 
Our God is powerful, majestic. He's big. He does fill the heavens and the earth. He is great, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He spoke, and the mountains were formed. He spoke, and the waters came forth. He spoke, and the light appeared. He speaks, and the storms are stilled. He speaks, and the wind is calmed. He speaks, and all of hell trembles at the sound of his voice. Yes, he is the Almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. But remember this. God's love is as great as his power. God's love is as great as his power. So, there's an old writer called Rourke, and he writes, in search of a personal creed, and it's in relation to uh, seeing and given the idealistic of a gigantic God, why would he think of us? And I quote him, listen to this. Jesus Christ speaks of little things. He makes us think of God not as framing the cedars of Lebanon, but as clothing the flowers. Not as ruling Leviathan, but as caring for the sparrow. Above all, he speaks in terms of the individual. One sinner, one sheep, one sparrow. So we get this idea at times, Lord, so many people on the earth and so much bigger as this, this, the outer space and so on. But when Christ comes, God in flesh, the incarnate God, when he comes, he doesn't say, Look at this and that. Yes, we, he mentions those for prophetical reasons and so on, but he said, look, God cares for you. Consider the lilies of the field. Are you not worth more than two sparrows? He starts to bring God so personally down into the heart. And he brings him right personally into the life. And he says to you, and he says to me, he says to the disciples, when we read the word of God, he says, your God is the God of the universe. Now he's me in the person of his son. He says, now he says, what are you worried about? What are you concerned for? He thinks of the little flower in the field. You're not that small that he doesn't know. In fact, he loves you so much. He gave his only son to die for you. So, Fourthly, how God is to be praised. Look at verses 3 to 5. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and organs. Praise him with the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. <laughs> I'm glad that's there. I'm glad that's there. All manner of instruments here are used for God's glory. And we'll not read it, but if you go into the first book of Chronicles, chapter 16, this was the first thing they started to set up was the worship band. They started to get it ready for the praise of God in the temple, in the sanctuary. It says, praise in all that we have, with all that we have. The music must have been loud and joyous. Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 5 and 19. 
We are to be speaking to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord, praising Him. Praising Him. Fifthly, by whom is God to be praised? Well, that's simple. Last verse says this, let everything, let everything, let everything that hath breath, Praise the Lord. And everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. The idea here, to praise Him. It means to speak highly of Him. To commend Him. To extol Him. To glorify Him in our worship. Okay, let's get the instruments out. And let's get the music going. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, praising God from this sanctuary, in this building sanctuary, from the earth right to the heavens. Just don't miss out one. The Hebrew word here in Psalm 150 for praise is the word halal. Halal. And in Psalm 150, it gives the idea to be clear in sound. It also means to shine. You know when you're praising, you're shining? That's the idea of it. It means to shine. It means to show or to make a show. It means to boast off. It means to be clamorous or noisy and boisterous even. It means to celebrate. So I'll close with this. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Now, in Mark 26 and in, or pardon me, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, we're told of the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot when he was instituting uh, the, this, the, the last supper, as it's known, or the, the Passover supper. And when he was instituting the breaking of bread, and Judas Iscariot would go out into the night and betray him, Matthew and Mark make an account, it says, and when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Of course, this is when then they came and arrested him in the Mount of Olives. They interrogated him all night and beat him and crucified him. Now, I hear the hymn that they sang. It is believed to be known as what is called the great Hallel, the great praise. The great praise. So every time you and I say, Hallelujah, it's the Hallel of Yah. It's the praise of Yah. Way. It is the high praise. It's the make your boast in Him. It's shine forth for for, for Shine forth for him, celebrate him, worship him, praise him. So we're going, praise the Lord. It's hallelujah. It's the great hallel of God. Christ going to Calvary to be arrested in Gethsemane, then give his life and shed his blood. Going to Calvary, sang the great hallel. And where do we find it? When you go home, read Psalms 113. 
to Psalm 118. That is the great Hallel. And Christ sang it. He became, as it were, and I speak with reverence, Lord, he became the worship leader of the band of men that were with him. I'm going to go to the cross. Hallelujah! Let's praise the Lord for it. For the time has come. It's the idea of this. Praise the Lord most vehement. He vehemently loves you. So, whenever we are looking through the Psalms and you read the great Hallel, think of Christ singing it. And there's a possibility if they had it, they'd have had a stringed instrument because the great Hallel had to be sung upon a harp or a lyre. So when you look it up, you'll find a little verse in there. I'll let you find it yourself. And everyone knows it, and we mention it. If it's a bad day to pick ourselves up, if it's a rainy day to say, oh, well, this is that. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But you know, when Jesus sang that, he was going to Calvary. And away in eternity, outside of time, before there was a sinner on the earth in Adam, there was a Savior in heaven in Jesus. And there was a day. And he, ready to go to Gethsemane, to be interrogated, to be beaten and whipped and scorned and mocked and bruised and battered, to go to the cross and bear that sin that I owned. What did he sing? This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Is it any wonder the old hymn writers would write things like, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God bless his word through all of our hearts tonight. The Lord bless you.